All right, so um, having spent the last two parts of this series primarily looking at the moral law, I want to turn our attention to the positive laws of Scripture. Now, I see we have a few visitors here this morning, so uh, just for a real quick recap, we are studying the topic of biblical law, and we've made a distinction in the past between Uh, natural or moral law, which is just the general uh, laws concerning right and wrong. And then the other part is positive laws, which are laws that govern specific covenants that we see God has established with various people throughout the Bible. And those laws are tied to those covenants and therefore temporary. And so we're wanting to uh, distinguish between... um, moral law and those positive laws. And as I mentioned before, the context for positive laws in the Bible is the various covenants that God has made. And so in order to understand those positive laws, um, and especially the various ceremonial and civil laws of the Mosaic Covenant, uh, we need to understand what those covenants are and how they fit into the whole biblical story of redemption. And so for that reason, I felt that a primer on covenant theology would be a helpful little digression at this point. Now, as I was preparing this, I came to decide that if I was to give a reasonably thorough treatment to this subject, I would not be able to fit it into a single session and do it justice. And so I've decided to cover this in two weeks. Um, So these two sessions might be a little short but hopefully they'll be helpful and maybe we can fill out the extra time with some discussion. Uh, So to begin, we need to define the word covenant. Uh, Sam Renahan gives the simple definition of a covenant as a guaranteed commitment. So two parties make commitments to one another. And a covenant can be either unilateral, in which one party dictates the terms of the covenant and the commitments of both parties, without requiring the consent of the other party, or a covenant can be bilateral in which parties agreeably negotiate the terms and their commitments. And since God is our creator, he has the authority to impose unilateral covenants upon us. Now, in the Bible, there are three overarching covenants. You have the uh, covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. Uh, And besides those, we have a number of other covenants which God has made with various people for specific purposes which serve those covenants. Uh, Namely, we have the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. Now, in the time that we have, I'd like to look at each of these and discuss their respective functions in redemptive history and how they relate to natural law and to the various positive laws that God has given to mankind. So we'll start with the covenant of redemption. And this is the covenant that was made in eternity past among the three persons of the Trinity, establishing their respective roles in the work of salvation. And we see this laid out most clearly in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Could someone please turn there and read that? Ephesians 1, 3 to 14.
in him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and blameless before him and love. He predestined us for adoption of sons of Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. For the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in wisdom and insight. To 14. 14. Make him known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of the Lord. Right. Thank you. So uh, do y'all see here how this sort of lays out what the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have done uh, as far as their respective roles in the work of redemption? Um, so, for example, would someone like to point to a place uh, that talks about what the Father has done? Um, anyone want to throw something out? No pressure. Yes. Very good. Um, that was in verse 5. Yeah. He predestined us. Uh, and that's the work of the Father. Any, um, I mean, that's... That's the main one, obviously. It uh, is expressed in a couple of different, different ways. In verse 4, it says, chose us. Um, and then just more generally speaking of him blessing us. But that's the, the main blessing that he has given. What about uh, the role of Jesus Christ, God the Son? What was that? Blood. Yeah. So it was his blood that actually enabled and accomplished all of this. Um, and you notice uh, very frequently throughout this passage, uh, for example, in verse 4, where it says, uh, as he, the Father, chose us in him, that is Christ. So you see this in him, in Christ, in the beloved, throughout all of this. So that's talking about how Jesus Christ is the mediator of our salvation. Um, what about the Holy Spirit? That's you go a little further down in the passage. Guarantee. Yeah, he's the guarantee. And um, that's uh, verse 14, the guarantee of our inheritance. Um, and then in verse 13 before it, he's the one that sealed us into this covenant, into salvation. So, yeah, to sum up, the Father elected a people to salvation. The Son accomplished this redemption by His blood. And the Spirit applies that redemption to us through the new birth, through regeneration, and seals us into the covenant of grace and guarantees our inheritance. Now, just as a side note, if you uh, read various authors on covenant theology, you will sometimes come across Reformed authors who describe this covenant of redemption but call it the covenant of grace because they kind of combine it with 
the covenant that uh, God has made with the elect, the covenant that we are in in Christ, which is what we call the covenant of grace. Uh, some authors combine them into one. But I think, and most modern authors seem to agree with me, that distinguishing that covenant among the persons of the Trinity as the covenant of redemption from the covenant of grace, which is between God and us, mediated by Christ, is, uh, is most helpful. So next we'll look at the covenant of works. And this is the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden. And this covenant bound Adam to perfect and perpetual obedience to the law of God and held forth the promise that if he had obeyed, he would have been confirmed in his righteousness and granted eternal life. And this is depicted in the garden in the tree of life, which was in the garden uh, besides the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So Adam had a choice to either disobey God and receive death or to obey God and to have eternal life. Now, uh, you may remember if you were here years ago when Hal covered, or when we studied Leviticus with Hal teaching, uh, he talked about how the Garden of Eden was the temple of God on earth and Adam was the priest of this temple. God told Adam in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And this is a command that we uh, commonly refer to as the cultural mandate. So God was in essence commissioning Adam to tend to his temple, the garden, and through multiplication, expand it to cover the whole earth. But since Adam sinned, this covenant was broken and Adam was expelled from that temple. And so man was no longer able to dwell in the presence of God in that way. Now, some will argue that we shouldn't call this a covenant since the word covenant is not found anywhere in Genesis 1 or 2, uh, or 3 for that matter. However, all the elements of a covenant are found there, and I do believe that its status as a covenant is confirmed at Hosea 6-7. Could y'all just turn to Hosea 6-7, please? Hosea 6-7. Can I get a show of hands? Uh, who has a translation which in verse 7 starts with something like uh, like Adam, where it uses Adam's name? Looks like most of you. Does, any, does anyone have a translation that says uh, like men or like a man? A few of you do. Do you have a marginal note saying that Adam is it, it, how it could be translated? Yeah, so... Um, and this is because Adam is the Hebrew word for man. So most translations like the ESV, which is what I'm reading and what I think most of you are reading, um, says, what is this? Turned already. Um, it's on the previous page. Yeah, it says, like Adam, they transgress the covenant which is implying that Adam had broken a covenant. So some translations say like men instead of like Adam. Uh, but even if you read it that way, you're left affirming that there is some covenant which men in general have broken. 
And you see this also in Isaiah 24, 5, which says, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Now, this is not talking about only Israel. And so we're, we're not talking about the Mosaic covenant in that passage. It's got to be some covenant that all men are under. And it says that the earth lies defiled because of man's transgression of the covenant. Remember that a consequence of Adam's sin was that the ground beneath him was cursed. And so the covenant mentioned here must be talking about that first covenant with, uh, with Adam, which he broke in the fall. Um, so as Adam is our first father, according to the terms of this covenant, he represents us in this covenant, making him what's called our federal head. Now, the word federal comes from the Greek word for covenant. Our national gov- government is called federal because it was formed by a covenant entered into by the several states to be united under one constitution, which is a type of covenant. So we're represented in our government by elected officials, and if they as our covenantal representatives incur debts, we as the people that they represent are on the hook for those debts. And so because Adam represented us in the covenant of works, we by nature share in the debt that his sin incurred. And this is what's called original sin. So unless we are freed from this covenant, we bear the guilt of Adam's sin as well as our own. Romans 5.19 says, By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And then 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, In Adam all die. This is part of the significance of the virgin birth. Uh, besides the fact that it was a supernatural testimony to Jesus' Messiahship, it also meant that he was not a descendant of Adam by natural generation and thus was not polluted by original sin. And so those who are never saved, when they die, they will be condemned both for their own sins and for the sin of Adam. Um, and so we, therefore, are sinners from the moment of conception, not just from the moment when we commit our first personal sins. And that's why if anyone is to be saved, it cannot possibly be through our own obedience, but it must be by the imputed righteousness of another. So that is to say we need a new covenant with a new federal head, one who is sinless. Does anyone have any questions, comments, objections so far? Yes, ma'am. What are you saying about if we die and we're not saved, we'll have the punishment of our sins and of Adam's? Or right. Explain that now. Because, again, because this covenant, uh, Adam was our representative, but we were all in that, we're all in that covenant with him. And so his sin, we are actually guilty for it in addition to our guilt for other sins that we commit in life. So if we're not saved and if we don't have, our, have that sin taken away from us, you know, judgment, those who are condemned in the final judgment will be condemned for their own sins, but also for the sin of Adam. Uh, this was a big controversy in back, was it the fourth or fifth century? You had a guy named Pelagius who was denying this, and, and it was a big controversy. He ended up, uh, Augustine was mainly uh, opposing him on this, and, and Pelagianism was condemned as a heresy. Um, but yes, that's not the only thing that was involved in the Pelagian controversy, but that was part of it. Um, 
so any anyone else any other questions all right yeah so again just so we need a new covenant with a new sinless federal head and this is where the covenant of grace comes in so since adam sinned there was no way that he or any of his posterity could be righteous before god by themselves and so god the son according to his own assignment in the covenant of redemption promised to be the righteous one in our place so that we on the basis of his righteousness could be saved from the curse that we were under due to Adam's sin as well as our own. And so he ultimately fulfilled this in his death and his resurrection, which inaugurated the new covenant, which we'll look at uh, next week. But it was revealed very shortly after the fall. And the salvation that was promised through Christ was available to all those who believed in that promise from that point on. Um, And so all the other covenants that we'll read about, which God established after the fall, have served the covenant of grace. We'll come back to what I mean by that in a moment. So we see the covenant of grace first revealed in Genesis 3.15, which says, God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Shortly afterward, God gives Adam and Eve the first type or shadow of Christ as Redeemer. In verse 21 of Genesis 3, we're told that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The fall introduced mortality, or what we might call animal death, into the world. I say animal death as opposed to cellular death, which is just a natural part of life. that existed prior to the fall. But at least I think so. I might be speculating there. But the fall, we know, introduced animal death into the world. And so what was probably the very first creature to ever die was killed by God to cover the shame uh, that Adam and Eve brought upon themselves by their sin. Hopefully you know the story. After Adam and Eve ate the uh, forbidden fruit, they attempted to cover themselves with leaves which were not adequate garments. And so those depict for us uh, our futile efforts to atone for our sins by our own works. So God produced for them clothing that was much more substantial and which were adequate coverings, and an innocent animal had to die in order to provide that covering. And afterward, we see with Abel uh, the offering of continual uh, animal sacrifices which are commended by God as a continuing type of the atonement which Christ would accomplish. So now that we've covered in brief the three overarching covenants, uh, covenant of redemption. Sorry, was that a hand? Okay, sorry. thought I saw a hand. Um, So now that we've covered the three overarching covenants of redemption, works, and grace, We'll look at the other biblical covenants, which are the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant. Um, And we'll see what their purposes were and how they relate to those others. Now, with the way that I've split it up, we'll only get through the Noahic covenant today and the others will save for next week. Um, And at this point, I just want to say that here's where Reformed pedo such as our Presbyterian friends, 
and even some Reformed Baptists would differ from the way that I'm presenting these things. Um, if you talk to a Presbyterian, they will tell you that the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants were all administrations of the covenant of grace. And what that ends up meaning for them in practice, or what it ends up meaning as they apply it to those covenants, is that the Israelites were actually in the covenant of grace just by virtue of being born into the nation of Israel, uh, even if they weren't actually believers, but just because they were descendants of Abraham. And so they kind of make a distinction between a natural and a spiritual administration of the covenant of grace, um, or an outward and inward, maybe the terms that they use. And so this notion that those who were in the Abrahamic or Mosaic or Davidic covenants, but who were not believers, were in the covenant of grace, they then kind of carry that same idea into the new covenant so that then those who are born to Christian parents are participants in the new covenant by birthright, even before they're actually born again. And this is uh, how they justify the practice of infant baptism. Now, we should agree with them that the old covenants as in Noahic uh, and, and onward, were necessary for the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. And so we should say that they served the covenant of grace, but we should say that they did so in such a way as that uh, did not necessarily make those who were in those covenants to also be in the covenant of grace itself. Excuse me. Um, Sam Renahan's book, the Mystery of Christ's Covenant and His Kingdom, which was published a few years ago, is really helpful in providing a distinctly Reformed Baptist understanding of how these covenants fit together. And he demonstrates how the covenants govern the different kingdoms that God has established. See, when God created our first parents and gave them that first commandment, the one that we call the cultural mandate, he was establishing an earthly kingdom which we call the creation kingdom or the common kingdom. And then in the covenant of redemption, when God the Father promised the Son a people, the elect, he was promising him a kingdom, which is called the kingdom of Christ or the church. And this kingdom, which was promised to the Son in the covenant of redemption, is actually established by the covenant of grace. So as long as we are on this earth, we are part of the common kingdom. But for those of us who are saved, who have been born again, we are also already part of the kingdom of Christ. Now, God made another kingdom, the kingdom of Israel with uh, Abraham's or starting with Abraham, although it wouldn't get the name Israel until the third generation. Um, now, all this, although this kingdom was distinct from the common kingdom and the kingdom of Christ, the people of Israel were also still part of the common kingdom, and those who were actually born again uh, from among the people of Israel were likewise uh, in the covenant of grace as well. And this kingdom of Israel was meant to be a visible representation of the invisible kingdom of Christ until the kingdom of Christ would actually be visibly inaugurated in the new covenant. Um, as well as that, the purpose of the kingdom of Israel was to establish the lineage through which the Redeemer would come. 
So when we look at the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenants, we should see them not as administrations of the covenant of grace, but as administrations of the different kingdoms that they pertain to. So the Noahic covenant administers the common kingdom, and we'll look at that in a moment. The Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants administered the kingdom of Israel, and the new covenant administers the kingdom of Christ. So we'll look at each one and see how they function in service to their respective kingdoms, uh, as well as how they relate to the three overarching covenants and how they function within the overarching story of redemption. And like I said, due to my decision to split this part of the series into two parts, we will only get through the Noahic covenant today, uh, and we'll look at the others, Lord willing, next Sunday. So to start with the Noahic covenant, this is the covenant which God established with Noah after the flood. And we find it spelled out in Genesis 8, Nine, uh, Genesis eight twenty to nine seventeen. Um, I'm just turning there. Uh, we won't read it, but in chapter nine, verse nine, we're told who it's established with. He says, "Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you." And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. And then at the end of that passage, in uh, chapter 9, verse 17, he reiterates, This is the sign of the covenant that that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So it's clear here that this is not only between God and a specific subset of people, or even with just humans, but with every creature on the planet. Now, as for the terms of this covenant, God is promising to never again send such a catastrophe over the whole earth as to wipe, it, wipe out all or substantially all life on earth. He gives us his token of this promise, the rainbow. And some have observed that the rainbow is curved in such a way as if it were a war bow, it would be aimed at heaven as if God is pledging his own life that this promise will never fail. This promise is unconditional, but there are still commandments given to men as part of this covenant. So in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, the cultural mandate, which was first given to Adam, is uh, repeated. And then in verse 3, we have permission given for us to eat the meat of animals, Although this is followed by a prohibition of eating flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And I will confess that I don't know exactly what that entails, whether it's only prohibiting biting into a live animal, which I have seen was documented as a pagan practice in some cultures, or whether it also extends to eating food that has blood as an ingredient, such as black pudding or certain types of sausages. Personally, I are on the side of not eating those foods, but I'm not convinced enough to bind your consciences to that. Um, Now, rabbinical Jews take this prohibition as a pretext for some of their really burdensome laws concerning food preparation. And we will talk about that later when we look at the Pharisees' misuse of the law, but won't get into that now. Uh, There is also a shadow of Christ in this, in that he actually commands his disciples to drink his blood because his blood accomplished what no animal's blood ever could. 
But anyway, following that, in verses 5 and 6, we have the commandment that murderers be put to death by the hand of men. And this commandment, from which we derive the principle that those who harm others are to receive punishment that is proportional to the harm done, forms the basis of civil government. And so from the restatement of the cultural uh, mandate and this commandment regarding criminal justice, we find the foundations of human society in this covenant. And God establishing this covenant was indeed a gracious act. Uh, This covenant was made with fallen man. Uh, Now, it does not replace the covenant of works, nor is it at odds with the covenant of works. Uh, But whereas the covenant of works now only condemns since it's been broken, the Noahic covenant instructs man in how to live in a world that has been cursed under the covenant of works. And so it was a gracious covenant, to be sure. But the kind of grace that is in view here is what we call common, common grace or God's forbearance with sinners. I know some people don't like the phrase common grace since it's really only, in a sense, uh, prolonging their time before condemnation. But I think it's an adequate term to, de- to describe God's forbearance. Um, but I'll leave that anyway. Um, and God's moral law does reign under this covenant. Obviously, the sixth commandment is in view. Basically, it's spelled out in the command that murderers be put to death. But we should also understand that God's moral law as a whole serves the cultural mandate. In that, people or a people that conducts itself in a manner that's agreeable to the law of God is a people that's most likely to flourish. Uh, In a few weeks, we're going to get to the uses of the law, and the first of those uses of the law is what's called the civil use. And this refers to the moral law's usefulness in restraining evil in society. And uh, that use is a gift of God's common grace. And it's a use which the law accomplishes by a number of means, but I'll get to that when we, or I'll save that for when we get to that uh, part of the series. So that's, um, well, talking about the common grace that we find in the Noahic covenant. Now, the covenant of grace is not about common grace. It's about God's particular saving grace, which is for the elect. So we have uh, the question before us, how does the Noahic covenant serve the covenant of grace? Well, first of all, from God's promise to never again send a deluge over the whole earth, he's ensuring that mankind will continue to multiply until the full number of the elect have been brought into the kingdom of Christ. Remember Peter's explanation of why the Lord has been so long in returning. Second Peter 3, 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is going to sustain human life on earth until all those that have been promised to the Son have been brought into the kingdom. Also, by establishing human society in general, he's providing the means for our advancement and multiplication, which is facilitated by our being joined together in societies. Um, And so that's basically the means by which God's elect will ultimately come into the world. 
Um, and of course, later, God would establish one such society, the kingdom of Israel, to be the kingdom through which the Redeemer would come. And we'll see that uh, as we look at the subsequent covenants. So that's um, the Noahic covenant. And like I said, we'll stop here for today and we'll look at the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and the new covenant uh, next Sunday. Um, And I hope that as we go through this, it's becoming clear how all of these fit together, um, how they relate to the law, and just as importantly, how they relate to the gospel. Um, So does anyone have any questions or or comments or criticisms or anything? Was I unclear about anything? Okay. Randy, would you close us, please? Father, we come before you and thank you that you have included us in your plans from eternity past, that you have given us a way of redemption, of salvation, that you poured your grace and love upon us, for that we could not in and of ourselves and not through Adam fulfill the laws that you've given and so we pray and thank you for Jesus what he's done and the Holy Spirit that has come inside each one of us we pray for our service now as we leave that you would use your messenger to to speak your truth your gospel to those that may not know we know that will be accomplished and we trust it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.